Matthew chapter 17. Open up to Matthew chapter 17. And Matthew 17, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 13 tonight. Probably one of the more fascinating uh, passages that we have in the book of Matthew. And Matthew, if you've been following along, is relentless when it comes to um, showing us who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is the Messiah, is the Son of God, is the long-awaited King that the Old Testament pointed towards. Matthew is relentless in this. It's page after page, um, just section after section. And tonight is one of those most emphatic passages. And we have to be okay with a little bit of mystery, all right? So one of, our, one of the challenges we can have as people is we want to understand everything, right? We want to understand everything. We want to be able to put everything in a nice, tight little box where, um, where everything just makes perfect sense to us. But here's the thing. We're talking about God. We're ta- there's going to be, when we're talking about God, a limit to how much the human mind can understand. Think about physics, chemistry, calculus, like any subject that you may study in school. If you get down deep enough into that subject, then eventually you get to a place where even like the top experts in the world are like, nah, we don't really know how this works. Well, if that's the case with the creation, there's how much more with the creator, right? When we're talking about the infinite God, we're going to hit a place where we just can't understand everything. And tonight is one of those passages where you're not going to be able to understand everything. But that's okay. Here's what you will be able to understand. What the Bible makes absolutely clear for us is who Jesus Christ is. That Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. The Bible makes absolutely clear what the gospel is, the way that we are reconciled to God, and the way that God enables us to live a godly life. In fact, Peter puts it this way, God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So even though on the one hand, you're going to hit a limitation to where you just can't understand everything about God perfectly, on the other hand, That shouldn't bother you because anything you need to be right with God, to be in fellowship with him, to live the life that he's called you to live, you will have that. So be okay with a little bit of mystery when it comes to God. We absolutely have to be there tonight. And don't get distracted by the stuff that you don't understand. Instead, focus on what is very clear and what you absolutely know. God is going to tell us, the Father is going to tell us that Jesus is his beloved Son with whom he is well pleased. Listen to him. How clear is that? I know I'm skipping way ahead. We could probably wait till we get to my lesson. But how clear is that? Crystal clear, right? Cling to that. In addition to Matthew, I'm also with Matt, our Mr. Matt, our teacher back there. Last week, He uh, taught us the end of chapter 16, and 16 verse 28 says something really interesting. Jesus tells the disciples, um, there are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Kind of a weird thing to say, unless you tie it to chapter 17 verse 1 where Jesus is going to give the fulfillment of chapter 16, verse 28. Matt told us that, you know, based on his studies, that uh, he sees the transfiguration that we're about to look at as a fulfillment of chapter 16, 28. And I absolutely agree with him. Um, Keep in mind that the chapters and the verses that you have in the Bible People added that, like, down the road. People, God, in the original writings, when Matthew wrote this, didn't have chapters and verses. 
it was somebody out in Anandale. Hundreds or thousands of years later, so it's like, you know, it'd be a lot easier to get the youth group to turn to the passage we're talking about tonight. We divided this thing up into chapters and said, hey, turn to Matthew chapter 17. So if you think about it that way, when Matthew wrote Matthew, chapter 16, verse 28, just flowed right in to chapter 17, 1. And, um, and what, what we'll see is both Peter and Second Peter and John, uh, two of the three individuals that go up with Jesus on the mountain here in chapter 17, both comment on this event and talk about this event. So I agree with what Matt taught last week. I think what we're reading tonight just comes right on the heels of chapter 16 and verse 1 of chapter 17 begins the fulfillment of the last verse of chapter 16. So we're going to read starting in chapter 16, verse 28, down to chapter 13. But the three sections we're going to look at tonight, first, as we look at this story, we're going to look at the characters involved. It's important we understand the characters who are involved. Second, we'll look at the event itself, what actually took place. And the third thing we'll look at is Jesus' instructions to the disciples. So I'm going to start, and actually I'm going to start reading for us in verse 27. And the first thing I want us to talk about are the characters involved in this story. So I'm going to read 16.27 down to 17.8 to start us off. So read with me. Jesus is telling the disciples, The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Pretty remarkable event. Very remarkable event. So let's talk about the people involved here. First, Jesus. Jesus is the centerpiece of the story. And if you've been with us in Matthew, Matthew, like I mentioned at the beginning, has been relentlessly showing us that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is what the Old Testament referred to as the Son of Man. Again, um, a name for a divine being who would take on human form and basically inherit the nation from the Father. Matthew has been relentlessly showing us that Jesus is the long-awaited King of the Jews. Remember how he started off this gospel. The first 17 verses are just tracing the lineage from Abraham down through David to Jesus, showing that going all the way back to Abraham, Jesus was the promised one through which the blessings to the children of Abraham and the nation of Israel would come. Matthew, and from all different angles, from every way possible, through the power, the miracles of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, all the things he did showing us Jesus is the Messiah. 
there should really be no question in your mind at this point whether or not Jesus is who we claim to be. This is just yet another episode in the proof of Jesus being the eternal God made flesh. In addition to Jesus on this mountain, verse 1 tells us that he takes with him Peter, James, and John. James and John are brothers, and you'll often hear people refer to Peter, James, and John as the inner circle of the disciples. So you have the masses. Everywhere Jesus goes, there's his people following him. Crowds, thousands and thousands of people because they've heard about this man who does these amazing miracles, heals people, feeds thousands upon thousands of people, um, has this incredible teaching. But from these masses, there's only a small number of people that choose to follow Jesus Christ. And then within the disciples, those who are followers of Christ, he chooses his 12 apostles, right? But yet within this group of 12 apostles, you'll often hear people talk about his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. The three that he was closest with, that's who these three are in this passage. James and John are brothers. And like I said, this is very likely, what we just read, very likely in John. John chapter 1, verse 14. Very likely, this is the um, event that John was reflecting on. In John 1, 14, he says, the word, the word being eternal God, it's just starting verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, who is this word? Because that's a pretty remarkable thing for John to say, that this word was in the beginning, that this word is God. And in it's uh, verse 14, he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Peter also seems to reflect on the very episode that we'll be looking at tonight. You look at Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 16 and 18. Second Peter 1, 16 and 18, Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So, you know, if you're put, putting yourself in the shoes of Peter, James, and John, this is an absolutely remarkable event that impacts them for eternity, impacts them forever. And when it came time for God to use them as instruments of his special revelation, what we're looking at tonight is something that they themselves wrote about. So you had Jesus, you had the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, but here's where it gets really interesting, right? Like, those four individuals, it kind of makes sense. Jesus is hanging out with his apostles, and um, they, they tried to get away to be alone, spend time together, Jesus to teach the disciples for prayer. Um, and, and so Jesus, it makes sense, grabs these three, his inner circle, and goes up to the mountain. But now look who shows up. Moses and Elijah. That's pretty wild, right? Moses shows up? Who is Moses? Major prophet, right? Like when we talk about the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, 
Moses was the author of those books. Moses was a preeminent prophet. And in a lot of ways, he was a type of Christ, or a foreshadowing of Christ. Because what did Moses do for the people of Israel? Yeah, redeemed them, saved them out of Egypt. The, the children of Israel, God's, God chooses these people, and they are slaves. They are slaves in Egypt. They are, they are slaves to a people who do not know the Lord. And God redeems them out of slavery and takes them to the promised land by this deliverer, Moses. Do you see the gospel in that picture? When God calls you, when God chooses you, until that moment, you're a slave to sin. You are held in captivity. And Jesus Christ takes you out of that slavery, redeems you from that slavery, and he's taking you to the promised land, right? Like, it's a... It's a it's a path of sanctification in this life that ultimately ends in eternal glory. You see where Moses is a type, a foreshadowing of who Jesus Christ is. Now, we're about to get to Hebrews 3 on Sunday morning for Pastor Dusty, and we're going to find out that, yes, Moses was a type, but Jesus is far greater. But Moses foreshadowed Jesus Christ, not only as a redeemer, but also as a prophet. Deuteronomy 18. Moses is a prophet, meaning he is an individual that God is directly speaking to his people through, giving direct revelation, direct words. But Moses is not the greatest prophet. In fact, even Moses himself writes to us that there's going to come a prophet greater than him. Deuteronomy 18.18, God speaking through Moses says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen, that's the nation of Israel, like you, Moses. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Remember what Dusty taught us, Pastor Dusty, in Hebrews chapter 1, that in times past, God spoke to us through the Old Testament prophets. But now he has spoken to us through the most preeminent supreme prophet, his son, Jesus Christ. Through the prophets, God gave his word to the people. Through Jesus Christ, the very word became flesh. Again, there's so many ties here between Moses and, and Jesus Christ. And here's another question for you. Is Moses dead? Physically, yes. But spiritually, when you die as a child of God, though your body dies, do you live on good question. I don't know. Maybe Jesus told them. I mean, I, I, maybe they say, hey, Jesus, who are these guys you're talking to, right? Maybe the beard. You had to, yeah, Seth's telling me it was the beard. It makes perfect sense. Um, now, remember, um, I had this in my notes somewhere here. I think it's like... Uh, Maybe I forgot to write this one down. Um, yeah. Remember uh, Jesus telling the people, God is the God of the living, not the dead. Um, and, and an interesting thing happened with Moses. Th this is really, really very interesting. Who buried Moses and where did he get buried? God buried him, but we don't really know where exactly at, you know? Like, um, th isn't that interesting, though? You look at the death of Moses, 
Um, and it's Deuteronomy 34. That's where you find Moses dying. And, and uh, it says, and God, he is capitalized there because it's referring to God, Yahweh. Yahweh buried him in the valley in the land of Moab. But no man knows his burial place to this day. Isn't that strange and fascinating? I don't have an explanation for you there. What I'm telling you, though, is there was something very special about Moses and a lot of deep connection with the person of Jesus Christ and the redemptive work of God, the redemptive history of God. Do you see what I'm telling you where there's some mystery here? You just got to be okay with, right? But there's also, in addition to some mystery you got to be okay with, plenty to firmly grasp onto that God is making very clear to us. How about this individual Elijah? Who is Elijah? Also a major prophet. Remember when Alejandro had us like debate out, argue out, if we had a Mount Rushmore of Old Testament folks, who would be on there? Moses and Elijah were like two of the first that came to mind, right? Um, And so we saw Moses had a very unique death in the sense that God buried him. What was interesting about Elijah's death? He didn't die, right? Like, that's what's interesting about Elijah. He didn't even die. You go look at 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 9, I'm sorry, 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. And after Elijah, so this kind of starts at mid to late 1 Kings, Elijah kind of prepares Elisha for the transferring of the torch, right? Like, Elisha, I'm going to be gone one day, and you're going to become the primary spokesman for God in the nation of Israel. In the nation of Israel. And so, 2 Kings, um, Elijah and Elisha are walking in chapter 2, verse 9. And when they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. He said, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. As they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire which separated two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. Elijah doesn't die. Elijah doesn't die. And as we're going to see, he becomes even a major figure in eschatology, in talking about the end times and the role that he's going to play in the end times. So those are the individuals that we have here. A lot of really interesting stuff going on. you got Jesus, his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and then Moses and Elijah. And the last person we see, the Father, God the Father. We've seen him give testimony numerous times in Matthew regarding Jesus Christ as his son that um, through the miracles, the power of God was demonstrating, authenticating the, the truthfulness of who Jesus is in his teachings. But the Father is here as well. And we see him say, this is my beloved son, in verse 5, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, now that we have our people involved, let's look at the event itself. Let's look at just what exactly takes place here. <coughs> so it's six days, six days after verse 28 in chapter 16, where, remember, Jesus is telling the disciples about the cost of following him. 
hey, if you want to follow me, it's going to cost you everything. Such an important reminder for us that the idea of Christianity simply being a cultural thing that you just kind of tack on to the rest of your life, 100% foreign to what Jesus calls discipleship. Jesus was teaching the disciples that discipleship is costly, but absolutely worth it, absolutely worth it. And in verse 28, he says, some of you are going to see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Six days later is when this takes place. Verse 1 tells us that he took them up on a high mountain by themselves. Matthew doesn't tell us which mountain this was. But Jesus, remember, we've, we've seen it over and over, just incredible numbers of people coming to him. So often he tries to get away to spend time with the Father in prayer, and the people come. He tries to get away to spend time with his disciples, teaching his disciples, and the people come. And every time they come, he ministers to them, and, and he teaches them, and meets their needs. Here, though, he takes them to a high mountaintop, to be alone. And in verse 2 it says, He was transfigured before them, and His face shone like the sun, and His garments became as white as light. I don't know exactly what took place here, but the humanity, remember Jesus Christ is 100% God. And Jesus Christ at the same time is 100% percent man and as john one told us as we read a moment ago jesus christ is the eternal word the world came into being through jesus christ colossians one tells us that that all of existence maintains its being through the power of jesus christ jesus christ is not 99 percent god He is 100% God. Yet this word, in a way that we can never fully get our minds around, we just accept it by faith because it's, it's so magnificent. This word, John tells us, becomes flesh. Takes on 100% humanity. And in a mysterious way, inexplainable way this divine majesty is clothed in the weakness of flesh the weakness of humanity and here in the transfiguration it's like that veil of humanity and i don't i got to be careful i don't want to make it sound like the humanity wasn't real but that humanity gets pulled back in peter james and john have the opportunity to see the pure divinity of Christ, not clothed in frail humanity. His face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. You know, it's easy to read that and not appreciate it for what it is. to think about that. Probably a little bit more in depth than would be practically helpful at the moment. But um, th- I think this verse, it's very easy to just read over it. But think about the brilliance of the sky. Can you just go out on a typical afternoon day and stare at the sun? It won't take you too long to have some serious eyebrows, right? Or like light. Think about the purity of light. This isn't whatever bulb we have in here. This is like light that is blinding, that uh, you really can't 
you, you, you can't look directly at it. it. It's the glory of God just completely overwhelming them. But it doesn't just stop there. It, think about if you were Peter, James, and John, and this transformation of Christ happens in front of you, that alone is going to forever impact you, right? Forever. Yet, it doesn't stop there. Elijah and Moses show up. Which, if you're Peter, James, and John, and you've grown up learning about Moses and Elijah from the Old Testament, and these are heroes of your faith, I mean, imagine for us if we were standing here and Paul just came walking in right now, right? Or like Peter, or King David, or Moses, or Elijah. Like, it would be something, right? So not only, if you're putting yourselves in their shoes, not only is, has Christ made this transformation that is really beyond anything you can compare, compare to or, or explain, it's this completely blinding glory, but now Moses and Elijah show up. Again, a reminder, it's Mark 12, 27, there it is, where Jesus tells the people, hey, God is not the God of the dead, but the living. Peter suggests something pretty strange here. Go ahead, Chuck. what Fox just said. Y'all must have like said Fox is still going up or something. Y'all uh y'all know. Um they obviously didn't, so I'm gonna be okay with that. But uh yeah, so Peter suggests something very interesting in verse four. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. I'm not really sure what this is about, but God immediately, the Father immediately interrupts. While Peter is still speaking, verse 5 tells us, a bright cloud overshadows them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen. When God's presence shows up, people are overwhelmed. People are overwhelmed. Verse 6 tells us when they heard this, they fell down, face down to the ground, and were terrified. They were terrified. It, it reminds us a lot, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, verses 18 to 21. Moses receiving the Ten Commandments, and the people are down at the foot of Mount Sinai. Um, and all the people, starting in verse 18, perceive the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may, may not sin. The, the power of God and the presence of God is incredibly overwhelming. You, um, you think about uh, Paul on the road to Damascus. When Jesus shows up there, it, it, it's a fascinating event because Jesus doesn't have to explain who he is. Jesus doesn't have to... Um, do anything other than show up before Paul says, who are you, Lord? Like, Paul doesn't even know what this presence in front of him is. But the glory of it, it's so powerful. 
powerful that whatever it is, it's Lord. And that's when Jesus says, I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. But over and over again, we see this example. You look at the calling of Isaiah and his vision of heaven's throne room just left him floored. Go look at Revelation when John sees heaven and he's absolutely leveled by it. God's power and glory is overwhelming. And here the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Matthew eleven twenty seven, Jesus talks about this relationship between him and the Father. Jesus 11, 20, or, uh, Matthew eleven twenty seven, and he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and any, anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Between Jesus and the Father, there is this deep, Trinitarian, the Holy Spirit's in there too, fellowship and love that goes back to eternity past. How can God be love, eternally love, before creation? There weren't, there wasn't creation to love. You and I didn't exist. But God is eternally love because even in eternity past, there was this perfect Trinitarian fellowship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Looking forward to the Son of God, Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. You look at Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 to 12. Psalm 2 is all about the coming reign of the Messiah. And that while this earth has temporary kingdoms and temporary rulers and temporary, temporarily powerful people who are really full of themselves, that ultimately eternity belongs to the Lord. And Jesus will reign etern- eternal. And verse 7 says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Do you see how that Psalm 2 message gets carried over to exactly what we're seeing in the transfiguration of Christ? The declaration of the sonship of Christ, his eternal reign, and the blessing on those who would listen to him. Uh, John three sixteen to 21. Talking about the sonship of Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe in him has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought of God. The Father is here 
declaring again that Jesus is his beloved son. And this has eternal implications. Eternal implications. Jesus Christ, in the eternal plan of God, was set apart to be our redeemer. When Adam and Eve brought sin into this world, and death into this world, it wasn't as though God had to go find plan B. It wasn't something that took God by surprise. But the eternal Son of God was already written into his plan of redemption. It also shows us, when we go look at Psalm 2, and we see that there is coming a king who will rule the world into eternity, Jesus Christ is it. Jesus Christ is the king. And so you start thinking about, okay, how am I going to line up my life? The world presents to you as a person, as a young person, a million different options for how you're going to line up your life. Who are you going to follow? Your own ideas, the ideas of some wise person out in the world, the ideas of some teacher, or the eternal son of God. The father says, this is my son in whom, I, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Do you realize that that's part of the call to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Is who are you going to listen to in life? The thousands of options that's coming at you every day for you to get your philosophy from. How am I going to live? How am I going to make the decisions I'm going to make in, in this world? You've got so many options. Most of them, if not all of them, boast against God. Go read Psalm 2, right? Go read Psalm 2 that's talking about this Son of God who's going to reign forever. And the nations mock Him. The nations, the nations um, show no reverence for God. Jesus Christ is the eternal king. Listen to him. This moment passes, it seems like almost as quick as it came, right? The disciples hear this in verse 6. They fall down on the ground and they are terrified. Terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus himself alone. As quickly as it came, it went. And now they start making their way down the hill. And this is where they get their instructions from Christ. What time is it? All right. I never got this every night. The instructions from Christ, verses 9 to 13. As they were coming down from the mountain... Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but said to him, or did to him whatever they wished, so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Every once in a while, Jesus makes this interesting, gives this interesting command. Hey, don't tell anybody about this. Isn't that weird? Especially when, like, most of the time, it's like, hey, tell as many people as you can, right? Like, that's evangelism. We tell you all, like, hey, tell as many people as you can. The whole idea behind the project next week making these um, these gift bags to go out for evangelism. So it's interesting, why here does Jesus say, don't tell anybody till after the resurrection? And maybe it's a political thing. If we knew of somebody, well, at this point, we'd beg for almost anybody to be president. But, like, if we knew of somebody who could... Um, instantly heal people, create all the bread that we could ever want, and control the weather. 
put him on the ticket, right? Like, maybe it was a political thing. Like, they waited for the Messiah. They knew the Messiah was going to be the eternal king. And so, let's take Christ now and let's start the revolution, overthrow the Roman government, and uh, let's post Jesus up in the position of our king. Maybe it's that. But maybe also, until after the resurrection, the disciples don't fully understand yet what they have seen. You get that impression as you go through the Gospels that before the resurrection, even after until the coming of the Holy Spirit, it's like they don't fully understand what they have seen. They also know in verse 10 that uh, the coming of the Messiah Elijah should be a forerunner. They say in verse 10, why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Well, this is based on Malachi 4, last chapter of the Old Testament. Malachi 4, the last two verses, Malachi's talking about the end times, and he says, behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He'll restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So they knew that Elijah was to play a role as the forerunner of the end times. And Jesus reminds them what he has already told them. Look back at Matthew 11, 13 to 15, real quick, and we'll wrap it up here in a second. Matthew 11, 13 to 15. Jesus is paying tribute to John here um, because uh, people are asking about him and he says a whole lot about the ministry of John. We, we studied that a few months ago. But in verses 13 to 15, Jesus says, All the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Elijah, John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah, as a forerunner of Christ, preparing the way for Christ. And you think about the death. Remember the death of John the Baptist? How did John die? Herod, right? Herod killed him. John stood up for what was right, telling Herod that he was wrong for um, his immoral relationship. And Herod had him killed. And so Jesus ends with saying, So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Jesus again giving them the reminder that he came to accomplish the mission that the Father had set him out for. To be the sacrifice for our sins. That, uh, that Jesus Christ, uh, in the transfiguration, Matthew is giving us another insight into the divinity, the, the reality of who Jesus is. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who came to pay the penalty for our sins. That is why he went to the cross. He could have stopped it. Jesus had all the powers of heaven at his command. He's infinite in his resources, infinite in his power, yet he willfully chose to go to the cross so that the penalty for our could be paid. He knew it didn't end there, though, right? Like, he knew it didn't end there um, because remember back in verse 9, he said, hey, 
don't tell anybody about the, what you've seen today until the Son of Man, that is Jesus, has been risen from the dead. So Jesus knew that it didn't end with his death, but his death was absolutely a critical part of our forgiveness, the payment for our sin. But so is the resurrection. Romans tells us that through the resurrection, God proves who Jesus is. And the resurrection is important because that means Jesus lives today. Hebrews tells us that Jesus lives today to make intercession for us who have put our faith in him. Jesus today stands before the Father making intercession on our behalf. The question is, are you going to do what the Father tells you to do? It comes down really to verse 5. And what the Father says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Are you going to respond to that instruction? What's going to be, are you going to tell the Father no? Reject Christ as the Son of God? Not listen to Him? Because the end there is destruction and damnation. Or are you going to listen to the Father? Putting your faith in Christ as the Son of God and listen to Him. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank You that over and over and over, You make it so clear to us who You are that You um, you really don't leave any question. And uh, we just pray that our hearts would be open to responding to these truths, that you would um, give us the faith that we need to be your children, and that we would live our lives in obedience to that faith, learning to love you more, grow in obedience to you, encouraging one another. And we just thank you so much for your grace and your love for us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.